This audio recording concerns Archbishop Harry Goodhue and a book launch of his biography at Fig Tree, New South Wales, on the evening of the 1st of April, 2021. This biography is entitled Harry Goodhue, Archbishop, Godly Radical, Dynamic Anglican. The author is Stuart Piggan. The Master of Ceremonies is Bishop Peter Haywood, and we hope you will enjoy hearing this recording. Copyright remains with Victory Anglican Church and Victory New South Wales and the Bible Society at Melbourne, Victoria. Enjoy. One of the uh, ladies who was, who was very close to Harry, who was initially going to be speaking today was Margaret Fuller. And so uh, Margaret would have uh, been those who are commending Harry and his ministry and his book. But sadly, uh, she passed away a couple of weeks ago. And that's a note we just want to sort of at least acknowledge. So with those introductory comments, we have a number of people going to be speaking to different parts of the book. We're formally going to launch the book, uh, and Peter Smart will be responsible for that. Initially, uh, we'll ask Richard Donnelly, who is a long-time friend of Harry from days when he was a teacher at TIGS, and he edited the book, and Richard will make some opening comments. Well, thank you very much, everyone. It's uh, an absolute privilege for me to be here uh, this evening to be part of these um, proceedings. I didn't really expect to be leading off uh, this afternoon, but it's, um, I guess it's, uh, uh, being, having been an editor, in inverted commas, uh, it does give me that um, uh, role, I guess, to be able to say a few things about the process of the book. Um, I have known Harry and Stuart um, since I was a teacher at the Laura Grammar School and continued our friendship through particularly being involved with Stuart's um, seminars at Macquarie University uh, in church history and other uh, areas and uh, Harry and I would drive up regularly uh, to uh, attend those seminars and then we'd talk on the way home and it was a, a lovely friendship. Um, I retired as the chaplain of the Five Island Secondary College at the beginning of at the end of 2019 and uh, as 2020 started, that was before COVID, I wondered what I would be doing uh, with my life as, uh, as the year began. And then I had a phone call from Stuart to ask whether he could pop in and see me. Uh, he called in and uh, I was delighted to see him. And he asked me if I would be prepared to read through the draft uh, of his biography of Harry. Now, of course, I was um, really privileged and honored to be asked. Um, but then it was basically, well, Harry explained to me that the reason was because Harry and Pam had read it through and would make no comments whatsoever. <laughs> and so um, Stuart, knowing I knew Harry, and uh, just asked me just to read through and see if there were things in it that he would not, and Pam, and he would not, um, uh, that he might not like. Well, I knew in a way that Harry would not like the process at all because of his humility, but also because it's was 21 years since he finished as, um, as Archbishop. And in one sense, all historical research is raking over old coals a bit. And so there are issues that I thought that Harry might just like to let sleeping dogs lie and reflect on it and move on. But of course, Harry himself uh, recognised the importance of history and the recognition that having a biography of an Archbishop is an important task. So um, I was prepared to do it. And uh, the other thing I was concerned about was that would it be hagiographical? Uh, everyone who knows Harry 
uh, would recognise the beauty of his character. Uh, he's probably the, the most saintly person most of us have, uh, are privileged to know. Um, and I thought, would it be possible to write a history, a biography of Harry without it being hagiographical? But on the other hand, it would be true. Uh, it wouldn't be simply uh, exaggerating any of the qualities or whatever the person that was the subject of the biography. It would be the truth of Harry. So in proceeding to read through the book, I was delighted to do it. And being an ex-English teacher, I uh, not only read through it and made some comments about what I thought might be best left out or put in, um, I also looked at things like spelling, <laughs> paragraphing, and uh, structure. And uh, in all of those things, Stuart was extremely gracious uh, and to allow me to make those suggestions with my knowledge that I'd said my bit, and now it was Stuart's book, so he could do what he liked. Towards the end of the process, I got a phone call from Stuart to say that he was in a bit of a, a conundrum. Uh, he had a photo for the cover of the book that he really liked and he wanted to use, but the publishers wanted to use another photo. And uh, he explained the, the photo that he preferred, which was Harry uh, in a suit sitting in front of a lovely Aboriginal painting in St Andrew's house, uh, dignified, etc. And the second one, he, Stuart explained to me, was like Harry being stuck in a football jumper and uh, holding a, bo a ball in the air and uh, whatever. And I said, oh, gee, that sounds a bit flippant. Uh, I don't think that would really be the way to go. Anyway, he said, I'll send them to you. So he sent me the photos. Well, as soon as I saw them, I changed my mind. Um, the first one, which was a lovely photo, lovely photo of Harry, but he looked like Whistler's mother. <laughs> Looking off to the left, uh, off not seeing his face or whatever, sitting still, looking out to the, the, the left-hand side or right-hand side. Um, then when I saw this one, I thought, his lovely smile, a uh, lot of action, a, an indication that Harry's commitment is to the Australian community with all of the dimensions of sport and whatever, prepared to do whatever it took to bring a Christian presence into the dimensions of Christian life, uh, or uh, dimensions of Australian life and be a witness within that community. And um, uh, Stuart said, oh, all right, when I told him. He said, I'll blame you, though, if uh, people uh, don't like it. Well, I'm very pleased to be blamed for it because I think it's a wonderful, wonderful cover. And they've done a great job with the church behind as well. Um, when I've read it since I've received my copy uh, afresh, I did realise how um, um, Stuart was the biographer for Harry. Um, the way Stuart writes the book captures the very approach that Harry himself uses. It's light, in a way, it's loving, it's um, seeking to reach out, it's seeking to witness to the dimensions of, of the gospel for Australia. Um, I don't think anybody else could have written the book as Stuart has, done it so well, and captured exactly the essence of Harry, uh, Harry's dimensions of, of leadership and ministry uh, and life in general, he and Pam. So I'm very thankful that I was asked to be part of the process. It's turned out beautifully. And so I want to thank God for Harry, for Stuart, and for the finished work. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, and thank you for your work in editing the book. Uh, it's a privilege, an easy read, and it's a privilege to read it. And uh, a reminder of how God uses people 
and just hearing the story of God's grace working in Harry's life from a young age all the way through, uh, it's a wonder and a reminder of the goodness of God. We've also uh, got here today Penny Mulvey, who's uh, presenting on behalf of the publisher, and she'll say a few words also. It's wonderful to be in your city of Wollongong. I flew up this morning from Melbourne and landed at Shell Harbour Airport and someone said to me, where's that? Is that the same as Al Albion Park? So I had no idea, but we worked out that it must be. So it's um, look a great privilege to be here talking to you all. Um, I also read the book in, uh, before it was published and I have to admit and I hope you won't be too upset, Pam, but I did fall in love with your husband. <laughs> uh, and I think that's because Stuart, as you just pointed out, did a remarkable job of capturing the subject of the book to the point that you as the author almost become invisible, and maybe that's the job of you, but it's really hard when you've put all of those hours and hours and days and weeks and years, like 10 years or some extraordinary amount of time into this book, and, uh, and we all focus on, obviously, the subject, um, this extraordinary man, Harry, but we can't actually forget about Pam because so much of the book is the story, particularly from the time of ministry, is the story of Harry and Pam. Uh, I, it's just, um, what would I say, I, I think it's a privilege for Bible Society to publish this book. Uh, Morning Star is the, um, the publisher on behalf of Bible Society and we are delighted because this is a remarkable faith, faith voice. We want to represent faith voices. It's an Anglican voice and I say that as someone who is very much an Anglican. Um, even if I come from Melbourne, I actually was baptised at Mudgee at St John's Anglican. I was confirmed at St Martin's Kalara. Uh, I was married at St Andrew's Roseville. Um, I went to an amazing crusader camp at Jeringong when I was about 14, which uh, just, I fell in love with this area, though I've never lived here. So, and not only that, I was on the, um, the Diocese of Melbourne's Synod when we had our own little stoush as we were determining who would be the next archbishop and we actually had to go back and have another election when we couldn't decide at the first one. And that's when I really saw the politics of the church at work, which is not necessarily a good thing, I should say. I think it's a bit sad that we get so lost in politics. I have to say, Archbishop, the, the story that spoke the most to me was the fact that you are both an amazing um, man of God, you also have what I love is also a naive faith. And I don't mean that in a negative way, I mean that in a way that it's, the, it's both the big picture but also the personal relationship. And there's a story, the story that touched me the most is when you uh, came back from a very difficult Archbishop in Council meeting where you failed to get something across the line and you sat in your car and you sang over and over again, Jesus loves me, this I know. What a beautiful thing is that. I used to sing that to my children every night. And that is ultimately what we hear about because Jesus loves us. It's what we're celebrating this weekend. And um, 
Harry and Pam. I'm so pleased that Stuart spent all that time. If you don't know anything about Harry, can I just tell you, he keeps so many notes and letters and cards and correspondence and Stuart went through it all and I think he must have named everyone who ever was an Anglican minister or any other time so that he could be sure that the books would sell. Um, <laughs> you know, Paul Perini was my minister and he was the first one named. That was down in Melbourne. So uh, it is a remarkable story and for you here who love Harry for Harry, you will just love this book. So I know that many of you have already bought it and um, we thank you for that. But, you know, it is a ripping read. Chapter 10 and on might be the ripping stuff. I found the story of you growing up, becoming a Christian as a teenager and your passion for God and your daily commitment every day after that, incredibly encouraging. We can all learn how to be Christians through reading this book. Thank you to both of you and to Stuart. Ten years ago, in um, 19, uh, 2011, in March, we had a service at the cathedral for Harry's 80th birthday. And uh, I invited uh, Dr. Stuart Piggin to come and speak on that occasion. And he mentioned uh, during the course of that that he was looking to write a biography of Harry. Well, what? there you go, he did it. Uh, undertaking an incredible amount of work. I happened to run in today to a lady called Louise Trott, who's the archivist for the diocese. And she, uh, of course, the art, current Archbishop has just retired. I'm in the Archbishop's office. And she's come along to gather as much material. And she insisted on trying to find things and said, we need as much as possible to keep a record of all these things. And uh, Stuart Piggin uh, spent many hours, I think, down in the bowels of the archivist thing, searching through material, of course Harry's notes, but just making sure we have a, a real sense of all the drama that was involved in Harry's ministry, especially time as the Archbishop, which wasn't always straightforward. Uh, politics is part of uh, the Christian world, and of course that was part of what's been unfolded, he, uh, um, told here by um, Stuart. And with that, Stuart, I invite you to come and speak to your book. Uh, thank you, Bishop, and thank you all for coming. Uh, um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a mumbler, so if you can't hear me, elevate your transmitter. Yeah. No transmit, no, no hands showing. That's good. You're probably hearing me. So I, do want to, I want to thank you all for coming. It's just so heartwarming to catch up with old friends. There's a story at the end of the book where, uh, about Harry and Pam taking John Chapman out for a drive. And uh, Chapo, as he was known, loved by us all. Chapo was a great talker, and Harry and Pam couldn't get a word in edgeways. And at the end of it, he would say, thank you for the lovely conversation. <laughs> and he always said that old friends are the best friends. And Rosemary and I left here 31 years ago, but as I looked down the list of acceptances and I saw all the old friends, my heart was strangely warmed. It's just lovely to see you all again. And thank you too to um, Bishop Hayward for chairing this event. Now that the Archbishop has retired, Peter is actually the Prime Minister in Sydney. 
He's watching over the entire diocese, so it's good of you, Peter, to fit us in. Thank you. And uh, my thanks to our other speakers, to Richard Donnelly, who edited the book, Our Friendship Has Survived, all the red ink he spilt on improving the text, and to Penny Mulvey for that lovely, that lovely address uh, representing the Bible Society. Thank you, Penny. And to Peter Smart, who has yet to uh, um, launch the book, and uh, he's kept an eye on the evolution of this, this event. Uh, grateful to him. And to Harry, who with Pam, for many a year, has run the marathon involved in producing this, this book. And my thanks to the staff of Fig Tree Church for having us and, and for, the, for the Bible Society um, staff who are here as with, uh, with Penny. And to Kerry McCarthy and her helpers with the refreshments. And when I learned that Kerry was going to be looking after the refreshments, all anxiety evap dis evaporated. Well, it was at this very hour, on this very day, April the 1st, 28 years ago, that Harry and Pam were driving up to Sydney to learn the outcome of the Sydney Synod's election of its next Archbishop. And Pam said to Harry, they won't elect you. You are not really one of the inner circle. But they did elect him, proving that inner circles are no match for the will of God. Harry's daughter, Wendy, when she heard, asked her dad what she should pray for him. And Harry answered, very unspiritual, he said, physical strength. He knew what it required. After decades of faithful service as a parish minister, archdeacon and regional bishop, he knew how the diocese worked and how it could work better. And he knew how unrelenting it would be in its demands, how challenging it would be to get this Byzantine bureaucracy of the diocese working. And he had a plan and a vision. And he and Pam hit the ground running. And for eight years, they served at full throttle. But better than a Rolls Royce, Harry was a Bugatti. The men will know what I mean. He was a Bugatti among archbishops. And a Bugatti at full throttle is a beautiful sight and sound. How serene he was, how relaxed, how sweet in all his dealings. And bombarded by all manner of intractable situations and crises, piling upon each other like a drought on a bushfire and a pandemic on a flood, each night he would just say his prayers and he would go to sleep instantly with Pam beside him looking on wondering. Astonishing. And it worked. Church attendance in Anglican churches in Sydney increased in his time by 10% at a time in Australian history when church going was hemorrhaging badly. The diocese was regionalised, resulting in management more efficient, I'm told, than it, that, than it had enjoyed for decades. Professional standards were developed to address the pandemic of sexual abuse. The secular media were happy. Harry was terrific with the secular media. Imagine that. Unprecedented among the church. The, the media hate us, <laughs> but they didn't hate Harry. And all the other churches and denominations enjoyed our company. And internationally, bishops were so grateful for Sydney's example and lead that Harry's successor was able to develop Sydney Anglicanism into a valuable world export. So was Harry prepared all his life for this eight years of unremitting service at the top of the ecclesiastical ladder? 
Well, of course, that's not what it's all about. The Reverend Sue Emilaeus, whom Harry ordained to the diaconate in 1996, wrote to me after the first launch of this book at the cathedral last Tuesday week. She said the best thing about the launch was that Harry gave her a hug and that, in her opinion, the most important work that Harry did was for the churches in Africa after he stepped down as Archbishop. She'd been a missionary in Africa, a science teacher in Tanzania with CMS. She knew how important it was. Others have said that Harry's most important contribution was made as Bishop of Wollongong. Others, the service he and Pam gave in their, extraordinary, their extraordinarily successful parish ministries. What I found myself wondering seriously was whether Harry's involvement with evangelism explosion might have been more significant in God's economy than his time as Archbishop. There's an extraordinary commendation in the flyleaf of the book written by John Sorensen, President of the, and CEO of Evangelism Explosion. And he wrote, God used a man named Harry to deliver hundreds of millions from slavery to sin. What a privilege to walk with this godly man. I am forever grateful. Hundreds of millions? Really? These Americans, they so exaggerate. But since Harry retired as Archbishop, did you know this? He was decisively instrumental in the internationalization of this previously American-controlled organization. And it is true that EE has trained millions to reach millions. It's literally true. And between 2007 and 2014, the ministry recorded 52 million professed conversions. And maybe in the years since then, it has headed towards 100 million. Whatever, it was many. And the Lord wants many, in fact all, to come to him. In America, on a study leave, I stood in front of a plaque of Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian, with Malachi chapter 2, verse 6 as a text. True instruction was on his lips he walked with me in peace and righteousness and turned many from iniquity. And as I gazed on those words, I wept. I, ha I had not done that. One day, when I have to give my account, I will say to the Lord, when he says to me, Stuart, what about Malachi chapter 2, verse 6? I'll say, Lord, have mercy. I failed you there. But I have written about someone who has done that. Will that do? <laughs> I know what your answer is and mine, but I hope the Lord thinks differently. The truly remarkable story about evangelism explosion and how it evolved and exponentially increased its effectiveness under Harry's guidance calls to mind another remarkable fact about Harry, his ability to choose the right person for the job. The parish councillors at Cooperoo Parish in Brisbane uh, before Harry came to Wollongong. They were astonished when Harry appointed Rod Storey as his youth worker. But what a team they made. The book tells something of that fruitful relationship. It's not only about Rod's dependence on Harry, we can all understand that, but it's also about Harry's dependence on Rod. In one of his day books, where Harry wrote his most candid thoughts, after an exasperating time with some who would not get on with it, Harry wrote, oh, if only I had another Rod story. Can anything good come out of Wollongong? 
Rod himself doubted it when he was in Brisbane. And when Harry told Rod that he was leaving and going down to Wollongong, that he'd accepted an appointment at St Michael's, Rod was appalled. Do you really want to do this, he said? Wollongong, who's even heard of it? But like Harry, Rod may have done his best work here. And so did Rod's wife, Rhonda, faithful teacher, whose presence we miss today. It helped greatly in the writing of Harry's biography that everybody who has met Harry has a Harry story to tell. I was reminded of that when people let me know that they were coming to the launch. They didn't just say I'm coming to the launch, they invariably accompanied their acceptances with stories of their own about Harry. Two years ago, said one of them, I did a week-long thing at Fig Tree. And who was meeting early morning to read the Bible with a group of blokes in the church hall? Who had the dinner with all the leaders to encourage them? Who was at everything? Harry. The Presbyterian minister wrote, I have had for some time a very positive attitude to Harry Goodhue. When he was Archbishop, one of my students, a lady of mature years, was in hospital with terminal cancer. In former years, before she defected to the Presbyterian, she was an Anglican and had been, I think, a member of one of his parishes. I was visiting her. Somehow he heard, and so he came. I was one impressed Presbyterian. From, Amer from America came this email. Will the biography of this truly Christian servant be obtainable overseas? It's a very good question. We could ask the Bible Society. Where is, where's Penny gone? She's, she's Penny, did you get that? Will it be obtainable overseas? He went on to say, The Good Hughes spent some time with my wife and I when they were attending a conference in Illinois. I first met Harry as I was pulling into my driveway at the end of a work day and he was taking my trash to the curb. Yes, a true servant in every way. The last email of this kind, which I received just yesterday, was from Chris Argel, who, who prepared the book for publication. I sent her an email telling her that Harry liked the typeface. It's an elegant typeface. And Harry and Pam are very elegant people. Have you ever noticed that? They like elegant things. They know, he noticed that. So I sent her this email saying, Harry likes a typeface. And she wrote back, it's been a privilege to work on Harry's biography. My husband, Tim, and I have a lot to thank Harry for. He was instrumental in bringing Casillo to the diocese, a time of prof profound spiritual renewal for us both. I doubt we'd be where we are today without that work of God in our lives. So we can add that to the countless stories of others impacted by Harry's faithful service. And that little story, of course, is more moving than Kristen knew because in the good providence of God, Harry chose Jeff and Margaret Fuller to take charge of the introduction of Casillo to the diocese, and they did a great job. And as has been observed already, Margaret was asked to launch the book this evening. We do miss her greatly, as we miss Rhonda. We take some comfort from the fact that both were so close to Harry and Pam, that both were marked by God for conspicuous service in fellowship with Harry and Pam and with so many of us. A significant part of the Good Hughes story then is that so much good has come out of Wollongong. To quote a great man, how good is Wollongong? You're all part of that, and I want to thank you again for coming. You Illawarra faithful almost equal the number of those who attended the launch in the cathedral last Tuesday. 166 of you, 169 at the cathedral. Your attendance, of course, is evidence of the disproportionately strong presence of the Christian faith in the Illawarra region, to which Harry and Pam have made a disproportionately strong contribution. It was even striking at the cathedral launch that Philip Heath, 
who launched the book, The Headmaster of Barker School, he spoke mostly of his spiritual and cultural development in the Illawarra, his visits to St Michael's. Now Richard, Richard Donnelly, who edited the book, he's yet another son of Illawarra, born here, lived here all his life. And I'm very grateful to him. He changed the chapter order so that it now begins with this account of Harry's election as Archbishop. And then it goes on to explain what I had not even thought of. Thank you, Richard. Why it is that Richard Henry Goodhue is called Harry. I wanted to start the book with a sentiment of one well known to you here at Fig Tree Anglican, Noriko Detlefs. She told me that there are two ways of making people change, by force the wind and by gentle warmth the sun. My wanting to be like the sun, she explains, is because that is the way I see Harry's ministry and he is my inspiration. When things are too hard for me to even work out what would Jesus do, I ask myself, what would Harry do? Now this little story in the Donnelly revised version now stands at the beginning of the conclusion on which I commented in the lives of countless Christians Harry Goodhue has been the sunshine, the inspiration and guide on how to live for Jesus. And when Sandra Goodhue, Harry's daughter-in-law, read these words, she told me that Christina, Harry's lovely mum, used to speak of Harry as her sunshine. She said that it was like seeing the sun break through the clouds whenever he walked through the door. No wonder with such affirmation Harry's turned out so well. We expect that, of course, from our mums, but Harry gets it from every member of his family. The close, the close bonds of the Goodhue family is, is, is part of our story. Son David wrapped up my interview with him with these words. He said, I love and admire my father greatly, and there are all sorts of ways in which I want to be like him. And then there is Pam. The book is dedicated to Pam. By a quirk of history, Pam was actually married, married to Harry the day before he was ordained. Normally it's the reverse. And their quite astonishing lifelong union predates his official ministry. With her clarity of thinking and excellent memory, she was a great help to me in the writing of this book. I imagine that being a minister's wife must be one of the toughest assignments in the life of the church. There are so many strong and contradictory opinions which churchgoers hold on that subject. And Pam thought long and hard about the issue. Her thoughts are in the book. But she never pontificated about the way to do it. She just made sure that she did it well. Harry and Pam were apparently indivisible in their ministry. He never spoke of I. It was always we. And it was not the royal plural. He meant Pam and I. And once, when contrasting their experience in Sydney with their experience in Wollongong, Harry wrote... As the Archbishop, we would generally make our way home after participating in a morning service somewhere in the diocese. As the Archbishop, we. So I had to put in square brackets. Surely a very revealing pronoun. It was a great relationship. No doubt defying the capacity of this biographer to grasp its secret. So with all this going for Harry, the Bugatti Archbishop, you would be thinking that I must have had a dream run in writing this book. Indeed, someone at my own church said to me last Sunday, it's such a positive, happy story. I said, where are you up to? <laughs> he, said, he said, I'm just about to start reading what you, call, what you have called the pimble matter. I said, well, the happy story is just about to come crashing to a halt. 
In truth, I have found two big problems in writing this book. The first was that there was so much conflict in the 1990s. And I was involved in the conflict, and I don't think I escaped without injury. So maybe the person who wrote to me telling me that he thought I was venting my spleen at times, maybe he had a point. I do not now hold any conscious animosity towards any member of the diocese. But maybe deep down there is a hurt that lashes out at times. I apologise for any material in the book which hurts your spirit. Perhaps you can console yourself with the thought that here for the price of one, you not only have an account of exceptional spiritual health in Harry, but a deep, dark manifestation of psychic disorder in the, in the author. <laughs> All in one book. Part of the problem, of course, in the 90s was the division over the Ministry of Women. Hugh McKay tells us that society has made up its mind about that, leaving the church behind in its fossilised opposition to women doing anything that men, men, men can do. But I think that's simplistic. Events in our national parliament in just the last few weeks show that society still has a massive problem here. It's not only the church. And further secularisation will do nothing for the empowerment of women. Still the best guide to blokes for to, to, the best guide to blokes about how to treat women is Jesus. There's a lot in the book about the role of women in Harry's spiritual development and his admiration for women missionaries such as Sylvia Jeans, his appreciation of his women co-workers such as Sheila Stockdale, who was with us tonight. If conflict was one problem in writing the book, as Richard has alerted you, Harry's holiness was another. How do you write about a person as good as this? Perhaps that's a greater problem than the other one. We don't talk about holiness much anymore, but the Bible does, and Harry reads his Bible every day. So this had to be a book which addresses Harry's spirituality. One of his archdeacons, Paul Perini, asked, what will Harry be best remembered for? For what he has done or for who he is? For who he is, wins hands down, surely. Now, I know you want me to cut to the chase and sit down. What is Harry's secret? A simple answer is that early in his life, he accepted Christ, and ever since, he has practiced the spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer. The word of God is food for the soul, it's been Harry's daily diet, and he's grown strong on it. But if you say, somehow Harry feels exceptional, I mean, Richard did say he might be the most saintly person that any of us know. What makes him so? Well, I would say that Harry does not obsess. He doesn't obsess, he's not, he's not obsessive. He's exceptionally open to new ideas. He combines humility with extraordinary confidence. Submission to the will of God with determination to do the will of God. And inclusivity and tolerance along with orthodoxy. Now I think the combination of those qualities is really very rare. We Sydney Anglicans, we're an intense bunch. We tend to have very strong convictions about the way things need to be done. We obsess about these things and are tempted to think less of those who do not agree with us. We learn the right things to say so that we will feel accepted by our club, by our inner circle, which, as we've said, is no match for the will of God. Harry thinks differently. For example, Harry attended the 1998 Lambeth Conference and the biggest, most emotional issue was whether or not the church should, should, obtain, should ordain practising gays. 
Harry was actually in the forefront of those who opposed that. But he did it in such a Harry-like fashion that everyone was astonished that such a kind soul could come out of that ferocious diocese of Sydney. He became known in the British press as, quote, the winsome face of Sydney. And when some years later a young African who wanted to be a minister made public his distress that the church seemed to be more concerned to condemn homosexuality than to relieve the poor in the slums, and was told by his bishop that he was displeased by his outspokenness and would not ordain him, Harry and Pam encouraged him to keep going, and he's now a bishop in another denomination. And when Harry himself returned from Lambeth, he was not concerned to dwell on issues of sexuality. He did address it, and it was an ongoing issue, but he was far more affected in his spirit by what he learned from African bishops about the poverty and genocidal violence which they and their flock suffered. And when he retired, we find him in his private diary asking the Lord how he can make better use of his money to help the poor of Africa. Now, if I were the Lord, I would, I would have said to Harry, you've got to be joking. You don't have any money. But he and Pam took themselves off to what might be the worst slums in the world and he compiled, compiled detailed notes on what, what might be done. And when he returned, he talked about what he had learned and people came out of the woodwork to give him money to address some of those needs. Now, I found, I found the prospect of doing anything like that almost inconceivable. But if I could conceive of it, I would be asking, what can I do to bless these poor people? But Harry and Pam rather reported on how those poor people blessed them. They were full of the Lord, they said, testifying, God is good every day. And they looked at the slums in which they lived, that one toilet for every two to 5,000 people. God is good every day. So it's Harry's ability not to obsess, leaves him open to new initiatives, to conceive the inconceivable. I, I suspect he understands that having a closed mind, we, we tend to think of a closed mind as a firm mind, the product of zeal. We Sydney Anglicans like it. But there's another side. There can be a closed mind which can be the product of sin. And we find him in his prayers, in his diary, praying, let grace undo what sin has bound up. This is the story of a graced couple who have served the Lord all their lives in gladness and freedom. And it says to us all, go and do thou likewise, and better, go and be thou likewise. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Stuart. One of the advantages of uh, well-written biographies is the index. In the index, we can look up everyone's name, and I'm sure many of you have already done that, and see whether you're there. But one of those names that is uh, quoted frequently is Peter Smart, and uh, Peter Smart is going to officially launch this book. Peter has had a long relationship with Harry and worked closely with him for how many years as registrar, Peter? At least one. At least one. <laughs> Well, after one year, he knew him well, at least. <laughs> Peter. Well, thank you. Thank you, Bishop. I, my main feeling at the moment is what left is there for me to say? 
the people seem to have got hold of my notes <laughs> and have copied them all. And, uh, but I, I will try to give you a, a, a point of view, my point of view, on uh, this book and the author and the subject. And, uh, and I will be saying things, I think, <laughs> that have been said by everybody else. I'll try not to use the same words, like a pleasure and a privilege to be doing it this afternoon. But it, it, is, a, it is that, because Harry is a friend, Archbishop Goodhue, and uh, he's the subject and Associate Professor Dr. Stuart Piggan is a friend as well, the author. And I'm doing this launch this afternoon as what you might call Plan B, because the lovely, compassionate, wise Margaret Fuller was to be the one launching the book. And uh, sadly, that was not to be, and I'm plan B, or actually I may be plan C, D, E, or F for all I know, because others may have said no thank you. It's hard for me to imagine anyone better to write this biography than Stuart Piggan. He has been intimately connected by the bonds of friendship with Harry and Pam, He's a long-serving and enthusiastically involved member of the diocese and its organisations. As well as being a meticulous researcher and historical recorder, Stuart actually moves in and out of the narrative, sometimes a player, sometimes an observer. I don't want him to get a swelled head when I say this, but I think there's just a touch of St Luke in the Acts of the Apostles who speaks of we and I and this happened to us at some times in his narrative and sometimes he writes objectively. Stuart states in the book that he seeks to write objectively, honestly, and non-judgmentally. But he does quote others who are clear about their assessments of the individuals and their behaviour. The book is not only a wonderful record of Harry's adventures, but a valuable insight into the diocese and the Anglican Church. And I believe a greater understanding of these very significant years provides insight which helps us to appreciate another chapter in the history of our diocese, of where we are now and how we arrived here. So the book is a fulsome story of a great archbishop and it is also an open window into the machinations of our great diocese and our place in Anglicanism and perhaps even Christendom in 2021. 
To quote the dust cover, Stuart Piggin has been designated the historian of the Australian soul. He co-authored a monumental two-volume history of Australian evangelicals. And there are a number of other books which he has authored. You can Google them and, and purchase them still, including the history of the Mount Kembla mine disaster. So it's, he's local and he is worldwide. Let me try to say something about the subject of the book. In the case of Archbishop Goodhue, this is not difficult, even though he is here. Actually, coming towards the end of the program has the distinct disadvantage of trying to find something else to say, but it also gives you an opportunity to say things that no one else has said. And then I heard this afternoon that Harry has the right of reply. <laughs> so I need to temper what I'm saying. Archbishop Lone had a distinct preference for waiting until your subject was dead before writing his biography. That way, you're less likely to be corrected. <laughs> now, Stuart really thinks the opposite. With greater reliability in mind, he likes eyewitnesses. But we have been reminded recently that recollections sometimes differ. Actually, Dr. Alan Cole said, try hard to be forgotten, it's much safer. <laughs> I've actually chosen not to say too much about Harry because in this company, it's unnecessary. We all know and admire him or we wouldn't be here this evening. We know he is gentle and kind and he can speak to us as one of us across a kaleidoscope of topics and interests. We enjoy his company and he even seems to like us. He's a good bloke. But I want you to know that this biography reveals things that you, like the Queen of Sheba when she met Solomon, can exclaim, only the half has been told me. You'll learn here of the esteem in which your friend is held all over the Christian world. You'll learn more of how he helped shape evangelism explosion for our new world. He's a change agent. How the bridges he built into Africa and Asia and South America have been foundational in the current influential roles that his successors have developed. The list really is embarrassingly long. One last thing. As you read, you'll find 
abundant evidence of what you already know and what has already been said several times this afternoon, that Harry and Pam could not be a closer unit, a unit of love and service of the Lord and others. It is and it has always been so. Like the writer to the Hebrews, need I say more? Time is too short for me to tell the stories of, for example, the establishment of low-fee Anglican schools. Back in 1994, Harry was exploring the ways of establishing 15 new low-fee schools in Sydney's growth areas. The story of the 1998 Lambeth Conference, where Harry played such a significant role in debate and the formulation of Resolution 110 on human sexuality. Stories of how he built a close team of pastorally active regional bishops committed to his objectives. Should I mention other issues? Pimble, lay presidency, women's ordination, the joys of standing committee. I, I know some of you will know how pointed that really is. The Forsyth saga, the Olympic Games, the Anglican Counselling Centre. The biography actually sheds light on some of the myriad issues on Harry's place almost every day and enough to keep a saint awake all night. Stuart has already told you and I repeat it now that I've been told this Archbishop sleeps peacefully. It reminds me of a wise saying. I read, if you want a good night's sleep, take with you to bed a clear conscience. My time is up, so I can't tell of the election of the primate in the year 2000. It made me think God must enjoy a good joke, but that is beyond my brief. I've been quoted in the book a couple of times saying I wished Harry had been more assertive and promoted his vision more forcefully. I've never said it publicly, but secretly I've said, the trouble with Harry is he's too Christian for his own good. <laughs> In Anthony Trollope's novel, Barchester Towers, he has a scene where the new evangelical Bishop Proudy is discuss discussing another clergyman, Septimus Harding, a much-loved, kind and compassionate man. The trouble with Septimus, he says, is that he suffers from frequent bouts of Christianity. 
Now you must now allow me a personal testimony. On the night of Harry's election, he addressed a joyous synod with these words. Pam and I will be a servant of each and every one of you with whatever strength and time God gives us. We are sent to glorify his name. That is the deepest convic conviction of our hearts, to empower men and women in their daily work to be what God has called them to be, to reveal the face and hands of God, to have compassion on the just and the unjust, and be the instruments of his love for us all. And my testimony is that at no time and on no occasion during my long and close association have I ever witnessed his departure from this, despite many provocations. Let Bruce Kay have the last word. Reading this biography is like a thriller. The story of an outstanding Christian and Anglican Archbishop set in the midst of a diocese known for its rumbustious politics in a role that showed what it means to be a Christian wherever you are. I declare Harry Goodhue, Archbishop, godly radical, dynamic Anglican, launched now at Fig Tree. Thank you, Peter. Uh, one of the characteristics of a biography of someone living, if they read it, they feel like their life is exposed and their heart's exposed and walking around almost like everyone can see. One of the credible aspects of the book, though we've just highlighted the significant things that Harry's been involved in, is that ca Harry's character remains unchanged. And that's exposed all the way through from a young age through. And um, uh, one little testimony of my own self that regard. I first met Harry in uh, 1986 when the rector at Nowra Anglican, I was looking to go to Anglican ministry. He suggested I go up and visit my local bishop, who I did not know, and so for reasons I still can't fully comprehend, I went up to visit Harry at his office. Uh, he gave me uh, an hour of his time, uh, talked through all the nature of ministry. Uh, it wasn't as if that was the only thing, but that was formative in his time, and the fact that he gave so much attention to me, a bit of a nobody coming to think about ministry, and I went home. Uh, when I started as bishop, I was telling Harry that story about the significance of that moment. And I'll quote the exact words that Harry said to me when I told him that story. I don't remember ever meeting you. <laughs> the significance of that if I may, is that he was the same whether it was someone he didn't really know or someone who was important, the character was still shone through. And Harry, I invite you now to come.
come and speak on your own biography and welcome to the pulpit. Thank you, Peter. Well, I can uh, plead is that uh, with advancing years, my memory is <laughs> failing badly. But I'm very grateful that God has led you the way he has. Thank you. I really don't know what to say. I mean, I've got things here, but people have been so kind, it's a little hard to respond. Um, I am grateful to those who've been prepared to read the book and comment on it and have spoken this evening. I'm very grateful to the Bible Society uh, for being prepared to publish it. Um, I think probably significance on the skill and reputation of Stuart, but I'm still very grateful. I'm immensely grateful for those, and I guess we all share this sort of thing, of those uh, who shaped my life, my parents, Baden and Christina, who loved and cared for me. There were three women in my early life who played a great part in my life. Um, Merle Wright, Marjorie Aspinall, and Adelaide Millard. Merle Wright, I think, persuaded my mother when we, she used to walk me up to school as a youngster to bring me to Sunday school. I wasn't always very regular, but Marge Aspinall taught a Bible class and uh, she followed my life through to the, uh, right through. She was a great lady of God. And Adelaide Millard was the wife of the rector of Dulwich Hill when I was there. And her influence as a Bible study leader shaped the lives and services of many people who went out to serve the Lord in full-time service. It was a, a noted uh, children's evangelist, Wally Guilford, he was the author of a little book, not a, a very famous book, Winning the Children to Christ, who visited our school and uh, told the story of the Good Samaritan and applied it to our lives and handed out decision cards. And I remember taking the card home and praying the prayer and asking Christ into my life. My headmaster was very kind to me. I went to see him not long after that and said, I want to be a minister or a missionary. He said, that's good, son, but do something else first. He was a very gracious man and uh, I appreciated that. Others who played a major role in my life and our life, Archdeacon T.C. Hammond, Sir Marcus Lane, Donald Robinson, Alan Cold, as you've heard, Broughton Knox, some names you may not remember or know, Harry Bates and Bruce Smith and Bishop Donald Robinson, with whom I've enjoyed a, an ongoing fellowship and regular conservation conversations, I'm sorry, for many years. I really want to say thank you um, to my family, uh, the four children who've, uh, and their spouses who've been uh, a joy to Pam and me and we're very grateful for them and their support and love and I really cannot find adequate words to express what Pam's love and uh, friendship and loyalty has meant over the years. She's a very able woman in herself, uh, but she's chosen to be my support and encourager and lifelong friend. And for that, I'm immensely grateful and very grateful to Stuart for his dedication both to Pam and my parents. Uh, 
In Sydney, where we, we launched the book, I had the opportunity to thank the bishops and archdeacons and secretaries and CEOs that were there. I would like tonight to express appreciation to uh, Dr. Reg Piper, who followed me here in, um, in Wollongong, to uh, Archdeacon Dr. Vic Roberts, who served here so ably, and to others who uh, I was associated with, and there, was, uh, there are bishops and archdeacons here tonight uh, whom I've had uh, encouraging relationships and whom I appreciate and value as men for themselves and for their ministries. Archdeacon Peter Smart very generously left his position as headmaster of the Illawarra Grammar School and became register of the diocese and he handled all the tricky business while I swandered around and did everything else. Here in Wollongong, two ladies were very grateful and helpful. I was grateful for them. Margaret James, whom I lost contact with, and uh, Barbara Bull, who acted as secretaries. Um, they were wonderful friends and a very great help. As you've already heard, there are a little group of people who walked those eight years with Pam and me, um, Peter and Faye Kell, uh, Jeff and Margaret Fuller, and Peter and Elizabeth Smart. I was encouraged when I started in Sydney to find a counsellor. Well, I found six, and, uh, and they've been marvellous friends, guides, supporters, challengers, entertainers, and all that sort of thing for us both. The Lord has called Margaret home, and we're grateful to God for all that she did, a, a delightful and marvellous lady. Pam, as we came in, said, you didn't bring the jumper. That jumper that appears um, on the front cover was part of the stage props. When we were leaving Wollongong, the Mercury came up and wanted to take some photographs, so they took that thing you see on the front of the book. They, had, they gave me the Steelers jumper to wear and uh, the ball to hold. I gave the ball back and the photographer said, now I'll take the jersey. I said, no, you won't. <laughs> I said, your editor's got to pay something for this. <laughs> so I've kept it, because in some sense, it is a symbol of our attachment here to Wollongong in the life of this city, which uh, meant so much to us, uh, us and our family, and still does. But I owe a great debt of thanks to the author, Stuart Piggin, for all the work that he's put into the publication um, I do thank him for his dedication and Pam and I met Stuart when we came to Wollongong in 1976 from Brisbane. Uh, Stuart and people like Chris Cullen, who's very kindly here tonight, were involved in the transfer of All Saints Fig Tree on the highway around to the present site and uh, oversaw the erection of the church building. And if you've never noticed it, the roof line of the original church was meant to represent the pattern of the escarpment at the back. Stuart, as you perhaps know, taught at Wollongong University and influenced uh, the lives of many of his students. Two at least, uh, I know in particular, one was an atheist. She came to Christ and later earned a doctorate stimulated by Stuart. Um, she's no longer with us, the Lord took her home. But as he also said, the head of one of Sydney's most prestigious schools, um, 
I came to know him here and he came to fully understand the work of the Lord Jesus under Stuart's influence. As you've heard, he's published numerous books. He documented the tragic disaster, mine disaster at Mount Campbell, as you already heard, and someone else here, Wendy Richardson, has a very telling presentation about the lives of the women affected by that. But Stuart's work uh, is extensive, and as has already been said, his Evangelical Christians in Australian history, I'd encourage you all to read if you want to read something about the growth and the life and the service of uh, Christ's people in the development of this country as far as Euro European life is concerned. And I enrolled with him uh, in um, Macquarie University to do a PhD just about the time that uh, I was elected, so that had to go by the board. But uh, as Richard has said, um, he and I have gone on numerous occasions to the seminars that Stuart ran with his doctoral students and we found that very stimulating. I said this in Sydney and I'd like to say it again. I recall a movie many years ago which I could tell you nothing of but apart from one scene. There was a church in the background, there was a body of a priest in his cassock lying on the rough ground in front of the church. In the foreground, a desperado that the priest had, seen, had tried desperately to influence was standing there looking at the prostrate body. And I've never forgotten his words. He said, I valued the singer rather than the song. I think in this book, the singer has done a remarkable job as he's done on many occasions and I think it is him to whom recognition to be given rather than the song. But uh, I thank God for the opportunities that he's given me together with Pam to serve. Um, if you're going to read the book then may I with your apologies to the Irish let me say that uh, the diocese um, in its internal workings is a bit like a large Irish family. They may fight furiously among themselves, but when they face the world, they come together and stand united. You'll read and hear things here that are perhaps strange to be recorded amongst followers of the Lord Jesus, but at heart, each and all of them wish ardently to see the gospel of Christ proclaimed and Christ honoured in the lives of men and women. Um, with so much of my life laid out for all to see, I can only say with immense gratitude to God, thank you for calling me to Christ as a schoolboy and holding on to me through all the vacillations and stumbles along the journey of life. Perhaps you may recall the words of 1 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5. I hold them. Paul wrote them. He said, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. 
So in the light of that reality, the only thing I can say is, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Thank you very much. That concludes our time uh, this evening or this afternoon. Many of you have activities you've got to get to on to uh, over this Easter weekend. I will simply say thank you for coming along. I'm sure there's still books available at the back if you want to have them uh, signed. I think that's possible. But I will close in prayer and you can make your way to wherever you need to go to. Heavenly Father, we weigh all things up by the reality of eternity uh, that's in your hand. We thank you, Father, for the opportunities we have to serve in this world. We thank you for your servant, Harry, and for the way in which you've used him mightily for your purposes. We rejoice that many have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ for his work. We thank you for the way the partnership between him and Pam have blessed so many and the relationships that have been prospered and grown as according to that. We thank you for the work of those who have uh, endeavoured to put this biography together. Thank you for Stuart Pigham for his work. And we pray now, Father, this will be used in your purposes and to encourage others to look at the world from the perspective by your work and that your work continues, Father, in the gospel. And as we come to this weekend, Father, we remember again the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you fill our own hearts with peace and blessing, Father, as we grasp the grace that's come to us in his name and we live for that and all that we have. Bless us as we go, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.